This is Software Defined Survival, where we talk to AVIT professionals and software developers to find out how to leverage software to reinvent ourselves and the way we do business. We listen to their stories and ask for advice and tactics on how to survive and thrive in a software-defined world. Today on Software Defined Survival. Who's going to win, IT or AV, as far as integrators go? And when I left the meeting, I was like, my answer is neither. But one day we were writing code for them, and the next minute we weren't. That can happen to everyone and anyone at any time. What happens if one of these companies go under or if one of these other companies uh, decides they're gonna sell themselves? We spent all this time learning something proprietary that's used by maybe thousands, if you're lucky, not millions. And JavaScript, when you learn it, you can do anything you want. Because now you're tapping into what's out there on the web and not just limited to what's in the proprietary little world that this company tells you. Greetings, my name is Patrick Murray. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. Today's guest has been CEO of Aurora Multimedia for over 20 years. And when I worked in AV in New York City, I remember Aurora as being an independent AMX and Crestron programming company that started making interesting hardware solutions. And now Aurora has a complete line of AV distribution products, touch panels, control processors, and plenty of other stuff that, uh, that I'm sure I'm missing here. They were one of the first companies to really adopt a software-defined approach with perhaps the industry's first non-proprietary control system, the WACI, or Web Access Control Interface. And that used web pages to control AV equipment um, way before it was the cool thing to do. So please welcome Paul Harris to the show. Paul, welcome. How you doing? Thank you for having me. I am just excellent here. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? No, you actually nailed it. Uh, so obviously you've been doing your homework on us, uh, but no, you're, you're pretty accurate. We, uh, we do uh, AV over IP, IP control. We started doing the non-proprietary IP control well over 15, 16 years ago. Um, we've, uh, also doing a lot of HD based T and, uh, you know, we get around, we, uh, we're a solutions provided company and we like to go outside the box to make it, uh, more of a complete solution for, especially for the commercial digital signage, government, military education, those type of more of the professional markets. We, we dabble in residential here and there, but mostly into the professional markets. Excellent. So I like to get the origin story of everyone because nobody really grows up saying, I want to be an AV when I grow up. So how did you wind up in this industry? I was born and I said, you know, I want to be an AV when I grow up. <laughs> so you're the one guy that that happened. What, what, a, what a coincidence. Um, no, actually, um, I don't know, you know, like everybody um, knows what they're going to be when they grow up. Like some some are going to be a policeman. Some are going to be a fireman. Some are going to be a baseball player. And it comes true for them. That's what they do. Yeah. I was always good with um, uh, electronics, uh, computers, uh, software, a little bit of anything that had to do with electronics or associated to it. I, I just always seemed to uh, just acclimate to it very easily. And so I started writing my first code when I was about nine years old on a VIC-20 computer. All right. So uh, I, I guess my first program was probably on a TRS-80, so I'm, I'm going to date myself on that one. In school, you know, when everybody thought they were cool when they type in, uh, you know, 10, uh, print hello world, 20, go to 10. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
yeah. one of those things that it scrolls across the screen. You think you're a programmer. Goes, oh my God, look. Um, I probably got my first taste of it that I, I, I guess uh, maybe that's what uh, led me to it was seeing Hello World scroll up and down in green on my screen. Uh, and then, uh, you know, got someone got me a VIC-20, dabbled with it. Uh, at the time, they were using cassette recorders, believe it or not, to uh, load in the programs. Yeah, forget about floppy disk on yeah. that. Was I was going to mention floppies, but now you're taking a step back. Yeah. Oh, they had floppies then. It was just for whatever reason, that first uh, ways to load in code was on a regular uh, cassette format. Go figure. I uh, had the Apples, you know, all that fun stuff, Amiga computers, you know, IBMs. So I, I, I've dabbled across all of them. But um, probably by the time I got close to the 13, I started doing more of electronics. I was supposed to originally go into like medical and robotics. I had a big fascination with that. Hmm. And then by the time I was, uh, I think it was about 16, 17 years old, uh, I came up with a way to do um, 4,096 colors on T-shirts for like the carnival fairs. So in my high school and college years, I was uh, I had a company called Digitrans, which stood for Digital Transformations for putting, uh, I would use an Amiga 2000 computer with a, uh, a subliminal die printer from, um, from Xerox. And actually, it was a regular inkjet printer. I loaded it up with subliminal dye, used some thermal paper, you print it on. And at that time, you know, 16 to 256 colors was considered cool. When you had a T-shirt, you had all these little black dots on it. And uh, I managed to get it to print out in a way where it was looking almost more realistic. And so uh, I sold T-shirts, mugs, things like that, (laughs) in carnivals, of all things. Uh, And it was my first, I guess, true invention um, where I came out with it. So I eventually sold that company. Uh, I, I started realizing my next important lesson, which was on sales and marketing. And, and uh, I started killing the novelty. And I started learning that sometimes what sells something is the novelty itself. And the novelty of doing T-shirts was the fact there was a bunch of dots that made up the image. When it got very clear and good, it just became a photo on a, on a shirt. The novelty was gone. So it was cool at first, but then eventually people realized, where's the novelty? Interesting. So you kind of learn as you as you grow, and I kind of just got into finding fascinations out of marketing and sales and mechanical, and slowly over the years, added them up all together. And then when I graduated college, uh, my first job was working for uh, doing video walls and um, and uh, projectors, like the three gun projectors, where uh, you got to do the old good old fashioned knobs. Convergence. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, made a design, helped design a projector. Um, and then eventually moved on to working with integrators. And then that's where I got my first dose of uh, Crestron and AMX uh, programming was actually for an integrator in New Jersey. Excellent. So um, what was your most successful project? And, and actually, by the way, I'll, I'll give them a plug. Uh, that's Go a Verix Corporation in New Jersey. Yeah, okay. Good, Red 22. Good, com- yeah. good company. There's a lot of good companies in Jersey. They're one of them. Um, but that's actually where I got some of my, uh, my integrator experience uh, was over there well-organized, but, you know, we had our good, we had our bad, but it was from there that I took out a lot of uh, what the industry needed and what it was like to be in the field. So one thing when I design these products is I get a good appreciation for what is it like to be in the integrator role? What is it like to be in the field as the engineer or as the programmer? So from what I learned from that experience is what helped me figure what people need or I think they need and how to listen to people and put that into the products to give them ultimately what's going to make it a better day for them in the field. 
Definitely. That's, I think that's a really important point. Um, having that field experience, I, I notice it as well, knowing what it's like to be under a table, trying to, trying to wire things up or figure out where things should go. It's, it's really important. Have you noticed any of that has changed over the years? Those, those field needs with, uh, I don't know, maybe networking or something like that, the changing of, you know, less connector types or are the needs essentially the same? Well, you know, at the end of the day, the needs are the same. Just the way we deliver it has changed. You know, I, I mean, it, it's, I, you know, this is one of the things that I preach out there is the industry's its own worst enemy. Um, yeah. Back in the day, um, industry was nice and simple. You know, you, had, you, could, you could delineate between a commercial grade and broadcast versus a consumer grade. And when HDMI came along, those lines got blurred and the market got very disturbed in protecting itself. So now you got these companies that really aren't manufacturers making a lot of products out there because they're just silk screening their name. They're one of like 10 companies with the same product and they dump it online and they kill all the profitability, uh, which makes it when you get, when you kill the profitability, it's harder to sustain support uh, when you're not keeping that in there. The commercial style and digital signage and all those industries do need a certain meat and potatoes on it in order to properly support the customers. There's a reason why we do what we do. And so when you take that away from this industry, you become installers, not integrators. Right. So it's more or less, oh, great, you bought the screen, I'll install it for you. That's not where we want to always be for this industry. So one of the points I made at Aurora was trying to make products that show that there is such a thing as commercial, why you use this product over that product. Um, and justify why these type of products over the ones that are just thrown onto the market. So that's always been uh, an important part of who we are and what we do, is to actually protect the industry from itself. But we're all a little bit to blame on it. Um, the manufacturers, the dealers, the consultants, we, we all played our part in letting this happen. Um, there are things that we could have done a long time ago to prevent this, but you lead by example. If we can do what we do and change that, then guess what? Our competitors have to do the same thing to keep up with us. And if they do it, then you create a trend and it becomes a way of doing business inside the industry. And then in turn, the dealers and the consultants come around to that way of doing business also. And maybe we could regain control of the industry again, put back in there the, um, the meat and potatoes that people have been looking for, which benefits you know, the end users heavily. I mean, it's not about you know, taking more money away from the end users. It's about giving them the service that they deserve, but you can't get that without having the proper infrastructure into place in order to achieve these things. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if there's no budget, then um, <laughs> there's only so much you could do to deliver a solution and, and help people long term. So you yeah. mentioned that um, there were things that we could have done and things that we can be doing to kind of regain control of this uh, consumerism in AV, consumer products, um, kind of yeah, making our industry not what it could be. Can you give me a few practical examples of what we could be doing? Well, sure. Well, first, I'll, I'll give you an analysis. So for example, back in the day, you would buy a VCR player or a DVD or a projector because there was a nice BNC connector on it, half twist, that was analog circuitry and used better quality chips, which made the difference of having an image that looked clean and clear for what analog was at the time versus something that wasn't as good. You had VHS heads on it that lasted 25,000 hours instead of maybe 10,000 hours. 
You had displays that were rated for better temperatures and better lifespans. Those were the things that when people spec'd in a project, that's what they looked for. Now it's a matter of how cheap can we get it? And is it cheap enough that we might be able to buy it three times over in what it might cost for a regular commercial grade product? None of the other aspects are taken into account of how that impacts you know, the actual meeting room itself when it actually does go into a failure because of the lower lifespan. But what it does do is it takes away a lot of the creativity and the originality from the industry because when you do harm to the legitimate manufacturers out there uh, and you just do these Me Too products, then what ends up happening is you lose the essence of, of what creates that new product that redefines the industry and separates the commercial from the consumer. And so the, a lot of what we do, so, that, so that's just kind of to give an analogy between how the back in the day where we did have the delineation, the BNC connectors, the better circuitry, that digital is digital at this point. I mean, if you get the signal from point A to point B, it's either good or it's not good. You know, gold-plated cable is not going to help you on this one. So not that it really helped you much on the analog either, but it was a great marketing <laughs> uh, thing that, uh, that I guess uh, I, I wish I would have thought of, I guess. I like that analysis because, yeah, everything is HDMI now and uh, we converted to get it from here to there. But at the other side, it's HDMI again and there's not much choice. And that that delineation between pro and consumer just really isn't there, especially in the minds of, of end users. But, I mean, ultimately, if you look at it, what is a standard? I mean, do you, I mean, I'll give you the answer, but do you know what a standard is? And a lot of people don't realize what a standard really is. Go ahead and tell me. I'll, I'll save you the torture of trying to hear me explain it. <laughs> standard is popularity. That's all it is. Popularity. It has nothing to do with what's right or wrong or what's better. Yeah. Uh, it's popularity. I mean, think about it. DisplayPort, when it came out, it did things HDMI couldn't do. It was a great standard, better connector, had the locking capabilities that everybody's always crying for. You know why HDMI beat them out for the market share. Yeah, better marketing, more popular. They made it cool. They got the word out there. They over time solved problems and it's gotten a lot better since its original inception. And, um, you know, but when it first came out compared to DisplayPort, DisplayPort had a lot, a much better uh, solution at the time. And still there's things that DisplayPort could do that HDMI can and now there's things that HDMI can do that DisplayPort can. But DisplayPort was the VESA standard. And look at where it is now. It's, it's the lesser of the two. So it goes to show that popularity determines what a true standard actually is. I mean, look at even the iPhone. iPhone has become a standard staple product in the industry. It's proprietary. It's specific to Apple. Yeah, you could buy these third-party solutions that they license to all different people. But at the end of the day, it's a standard because they made it popular. Just like Android became a standard because they made it popular. But that is really what a standard is, is, is popularity. So no one made anything popular that was unique or specific to commercial. And that's one of the problems that happened along the way. And also what happened was you also had these commercial, these consumer technologies that now overseas companies and countries that can make these at a very low cost were like, oh, well, if I'm already doing consumer, well, it's not that much harder now to do commercial. Might as well dump it onto that market too. And then they allow everybody and anybody who wants to buy the product from them to slap their silkscreen on it and become one of these people. So what happens now is you get a lot of people who, I mean, I've been in bids against people who work in out of their houses 
and they're buying it from these overseas companies and they slap it out there. And it's not to say that some of these products don't work well. Some of them do, some of them don't, but they don't have real control over the product. They don't have any real ability to support it in the way that it needs to be supported. They want to change it or evolve it. They can't really do that. It's, it's, a, it's a copycat product. It's just something that was made by an overseas company that they get the right to put their name on it too. There's a ton of companies out there who do that. And the problem is when the dealers buy from those companies, they're hurting the industry. They're not helping it. They're hurting it. I know it helps them get that job, but that's, that's been the chicken and the egg problem that I'm trying to solve. I don't blame them because if you're going in a bid and you're going to be the highest one in it, you're not going to win it. So unfortunately, we, become a, we all become a slave to it. It, it has this domino effect. So the only way to fix it is it's got to start at the manufacturer to fix it. Manufacturers got to step up, show that there is a better way to do it, show that there's a reason to do it, and then keep doing it. And when the market reacts to that and likes the justification, they will in kind spec the product, keep growing the company, and then the job of the other manufacturers, and this is what free trade and capitalism is all about, is to make a better product than what I did, following the same footsteps and following on that recipe. And then my job is to go, oh, crap, they, they did a better job than me. Now I need to go back and do something better than them. That stimulates creativity. That stimulates making the industry better. And in turn, guess what's going to happen? The companies that don't have the regionality, that don't make their own products, are going to eventually die down and fall away by the wayside because they're not going to have what it takes to keep up with that. And in turn, that will start correcting the market because the manufacturers started it then the dealers and consultants follow. And as long as everybody sticks to that game plan and these original and uh, products keep coming out, then you'll see the industry will start to go in the right direction again. It's not going to be an overnight success story, but somebody's got to start it. And right now, trying to be the company that does it, I guess we'll find out in a few years if we achieved it. If I did, great. If I didn't, at least I could say I didn't sit there on my, my hands under my ass. I actually tried something. Absolutely. I, I, that's kind of a unique perspective. I never heard that before, that, um, that we're not doing anything for the pro market that is unique and creative. And I'd like to dig a little more deep into that because you've got companies like Apple, Google, Amazon, and that's some big competition to, uh, to, to compete against. How do you do something unique for the pro market, which generally people don't really differentiate. They just see technology. They see technology in their home. They use Zoom and Skype and, and, and mobile devices and apps. And then they go to work, expect the same experience. What are some things we could do to be unique for the pro market? Well, it's a matter of embracing technologies and utilizing it to your advantage. So for example, just because Google and Amazon make things that talk, one, doesn't mean people are going to accept it in conference rooms. Okay, so that's the first thing is product acceptance. But it's not to say that you can't wrapper these products and enhance them to make it more commercialized. They do give out their their um, their syntax and their protocols. So there's nothing to stop. I mean, I saw one company, they took one of the Amazon products and they turned it into uh, loudspeakers that you can populate all over the place with the Amazon elements built into it. Very clever. Uh, I forgot the name of the company, but um, they took this product embraced it and made something more out of it that would affect the market. Um, I think you're going to see that it's not a matter of doing something against it. It's more a matter of embracing it and thinking outside the box of, okay, you've got this technology that really is 
their, their majority of the market is residential. So it's not a matter of, are they going to take it away from the regular conference room? It's what am I going to do to make it into a better conference room experience, which is not what they're focused on. All right. That's a helpful answer. I like that a lot, especially the example of uh, Echo being built into loudspeakers That's um, and then a way to manage that. Yeah. It's really a matter of embracing the technology. And you know, this is where creativity comes from. Okay. They did something. It's impeding on our, on our stuff. What are you going to do about it? We're going to sit there going, boo-hoo-hoo. Uh, how dare they? Or are we going to answer back and say, okay, this is what we're going to do to embrace it or to do something maybe different that counters it? Uh, and show why it stays commercial. But there's always something that you can do uh, to further those technologies. So at the end of the day, you know, years ago, people were actually having the arguments of what's, you know, I, I went to this uh, Infocom 100 show years ago, and there was a debate where it was about who's going to win, IT or AV, as far as integrators go. And when I left the meeting, I was like, my answer is neither. At the end of the day, what people fail to realize is there is a certain level of expertise that is not going to go away anytime soon. Maybe decades from now, they'll make it self-serving and it will figure itself out. But for nowadays, look, you might have an, an IT product, but at the end of the day, what people fail to realize is you're, you're just using a network switch for, let's say, AV over IP. You're just using the network switch as the glue. It just takes the place of the matrix is all it does. But at the end of the day, it's an AV installer who needs to install it. It becomes the element where if you really break it down, an IT person is trained more on the network switch and basic peripheral connections, not always about the actual peripheral itself and the details of what makes it work. You're not going to get a typical IT person to microphone balance out a room or to hang a projector uh, and shoot the, shoot the stuff into the studs or the, the ceiling um, uh, concrete um, and things of that nature. The AV companies have the expertise to do that. Most IT companies don't have the control system uh, custom, customization that it takes to bring all these different technologies together. That is an art form that, that really is what geared up in an AV integrator. Now, it's not to say that the IT people don't have their own expertise. They know how to set up the network switches. They know how to do their own set of skills. I think what's really going to happen more than anything is um, you're going to see the AV integrator and the IT companies cooperating more or AV companies having to bring in more of an IT knowledgeable staff to support these, uh, these, uh, these ongoing technologies that are going towards the way of IT. So it doesn't mean AV has to leave AV. At the end of the day, you still got a camera in the room. You still got physical presence in the room. You can't cloud that. Right. So there is a certain art form. You got to put a floor box in, a box on the table. That doesn't go away. And that in itself is what makes an AV integrator special and unique. Just like an IT integrator, they got what makes them special and unique, which has to do with their knowledge and their installs of these server rooms and things of that nature. That's where their expertise. So I do see and recommend a lot of collaboration. So where one starts, the other one ends. And that's kind of what I've seen a lot of, uh, is just collaboration and people working more together and still doing what they do. Just because it's going towards the IT world doesn't mean you're fully in the IT world. You've still got a physical world uh, that has to be installed and customized. Absolutely. It's, it's certainly not an either-or decision. And um, yeah, collaboration and partnerships is um, really what 
technology is all about, especially things like software. You talk about integration all the time, and uh, we're really just changing the transport mechanism. Like you were saying, the analog part, what what hits your eyes and ears, or the camera that that translates um, the real world into video. That that's never in the IT domain. Um, you mentioned uh, a few uh, AV distribution technologies, and just to shift gears a little bit, you used to see how many inputs you had, how many outputs you had, and then you pick the matrix switch that fit it. But now we've got more choice. So we've got HD base D, AV over one gig, and something like SDVOE, AV over 10 gig. Can you give me some practical tips, some rules of thumbs maybe on, on how to quickly decide which technology fits a particular project? Actually, it's pretty simple, and it's the one most overlooked thing. Uh, application determines it. It's that simple. It's not the technology itself. That's part of it. It is the application. So, for example, if you're doing a digital signage project that you're just hanging screens through a movie theater or a wall, well, for the amount of time frame that people looking at the image, you just need a good-looking quality image that doesn't further degrade the current one. One gig solution, nice and low cost, easy to throw in. Life is good. Price point at that at that level. Then you get into, well, I need very low latency, perfect quality. I'm doing broadcast. I'm doing an auditorium. I need real time. I'm doing medical, virtual reality. That's where the 10 gig comes into play. Now, I know there's some products out there that are claiming the one gig is as good as the 10 gig. That's nonsense. Uh, it looks great. Don't get me wrong. And I'll, I'll call them out on it. This is what we're going to be talking about now, Crestron and their NVX. Um, they've been taking stabs at us uh, claiming that uh, they can do their stuff as good as a 10 gig. And it's a, it's a lot of smoke screen is what it is. Now, what they created is very good for a one gig, very overpriced for a one gig, about almost two and a half times overpriced. Um, but as far as taking on a 10 gig, 10 gig now is, is very inexpensive to do the network switches. Netgear just came out with a 96 port card cage system, which is extremely inexpensive. Um, you can now get an eight-port switch online from Netgear for like seven, eight hundred bucks. You get a sixteen-port now for about twelve ninety-nine online. So they're not exactly expensive um, the way it's being claimed out there. Now, ten gig is actually no more complicated to work with than one gig. It's the same thing. It's just follow the rules of the game, and life is good. Difference is, it's got true visually lossless compression. I mean, you're at a one point three to one compression rate with only 100 microseconds of latency. The one gigs, you get up to close to two frames of latency, at least with the NVX. Things generating a lot of heat and uh, power at almost 35 watts. And it's, uh, it's got a 20 to one compression. Don't make it look good because static images, you know, it builds up a buffer frame and transfers the information. So static, it'll look decent. Once you get some motion going, it's potluck. And that, that you just can't, you can't change mathematics. When you compress something 20 to one, something's got to go. And if something goes, where's it going? And what was it that went? Um, yeah. That's really just what it comes down to. Oh, detail. Yeah, exactly. So what I tell people is look at the price, the performance, the application. I mean, sometimes even 10-100 with a good old H.264, H.265 suits. I and mean, if you're going halfway around the world, one gig and 10 gig is way too much bandwidth. Now you get into the H.264, H.265. Yes, you pay the price with clarity and latency, but it solves the problem. Point to point, cost-wise, HD base T, hands down, still is the best cost. Can you say that again? For point to point, HD base T, uh, hands down, best, best price for performance. And when you need to do some switching? 
Switching, you get into the AV over IP at that point. Once you go, once you start multiplying it, AV over IP becomes the better, more cost-effective, and more powerful solution. Really, e- even like in something as small as eight by eight. Uh, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Interesting. I saw a ton of my one gig solutions, uh, you know, because we priced it where my wall plate's basically the same price as an HD base C wall plate. My box unit's just a little bit more than an HD base T box unit, and it's doing full four K. Now, we did add a little bit of a stump into that. We just recently came out with our new HT series of HD-based T products, which uh, we supercharged it, gave it more life, added Dante to it, uh, IP control. We added um, the ability to do 4K cinema at the full 18 gig bandwidth um, and uh, at the same price that we're currently doing our HD-based T. So that adds another little wrench into the works there as far as price for performance and what you're doing. So it gives more choice and more variety. I don't think HD base T is counted out yet. I think it's going to be around for a while. And I think you're going to see hybrid solutions to mix the IP with the HD base T. And eventually you're going to probably see HD base T IP, which will then be a competing format against SD VOE. And then the two are going to battle it out. Very interesting. And that goes back to your, uh, your argument of IT integrators will always be relevant and even more so because we have more choice now and, and you need to know your stuff to, to make that decision, what the best technology is. I think that everybody's going to be relevant. AV integrators are going to keep doing what they're doing. Um, the key is they just need to get back control of the environment. I think IT people are going to be relevant in their own way. They're going to need to handle, you know, they, they are the network experts. They understand it in and out, and they usually are in charge of the overall infrastructure of the, of the network. Personally, I like to keep it where the AV over IP is on its own network switch so that the AV integrators can support it properly. and then uplink it into the rest of the system. That's my preference. I think it gets people into less trouble. I I like it. (laughs) And I think uh, pretty much every AV person would like that as well, because it just takes away that element of, yeah, what don't I know about what's going on here? And uh, when you have your own network, obviously that's, that's one less thing. You're not worried about an email or somebody downloading a big file. And those are things that um, really could throw a monkey wrench into uh, a deployment. But at the same time, you know, the, the benefit of a network is that there's there's one of them, so you're not doubling that infrastructure. You mentioned a few things you're working on. Are you working on anything else you'd like to talk about, anything interesting? Well, one of the things you talked about at the beginning, which we'll uh, be showing at Infocom, is our new control engine uh, called REACTS, R-E-A-X. And it stands for Action Reaction. And it's a non-proprietary control based on uh, pure JavaScript. And we'll be showing that at our booth. And one of the things that you brought up at the beginning was, why do these things fail? Like where everybody comes out with a new control engine, but they never, you never really see it go anywhere. Yeah. And the big problem is most of these companies have too much vested into their proprietary technologies. Not necessarily that they like them, but they've put a lot of time and money into it and it's what they're comfortable with from doing it for all these years. So that's part of the problem. And one of the mistakes that everybody makes out there when they come out with their new control engine is they think that just because it's better and they took a different approach to it, it's going to make a difference. And the answer is, and this is how I started off this whole segment, was that's not how it works. And that's why they're failing. They'll sell units. We all do. There's always business out there. Somebody will give it a shot, but it's never going to truly penetrate the industry. And it's going to be just another attempt that has failed over the years, which I've seen so many companies come and go with their attempts at it. I mean, I can go down the list, but it's a lot. Yeah. But 
what's different about React, and this is the biggest difference, it's not just about Aurora. We're going to allow all or just about all manufacturers who are qualified to use Reacts. So it's not just about Aurora's Reacts. Think of us as the Google that created the Android. We're going to be the Google that created the Reacts, or the Aurora in this case that created Reacts. And then we're going to allow manufacturers to use our technology that we've come up with. So that way we're not just sharing protocols, we're sharing actual code. And there's a commonality, and that never existed. No one's ever attempted that in the industry. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> Sign me up. I'd love to learn more about it because there are a lot of uh, – so the trend now is for a manufacturer to do everything, right? You used to get your control yes. from this guy and your switcher from this guy, but now everybody <laughs> is almost – they're almost forced into being ma- making a control system. And I would guess that not every manufacturer even wants to, but they kind of have to because people ask about it. So uh, overreaching standards-based, I mean, JavaScript is the most popular language on the planet. Um, you could find a developer <laughs> really easy at freelancer.com. And uh, so it would open up a whole bunch of resources and just, just the device driver problem alone is, is a great argument for settling on, on one kind of a platform. So this sounds pretty interesting. How can we uh, find more, find out more about it? Uh, come to my booth at C2146 at Infocom. We actually invite our competitors, you know, manufacturers uh, who are not competitors, uh, end users, dealers. We'll be showing it off at our booth. Um, it's, uh, we'll give more detail about what it is and how it's going to work. And we'll continue to, um, you know, to, to drive that message uh, to everybody about, you know, you'll see a lot of marketing out there on this thing when you get to Infocom. So it, it's something that's, uh, one of the reasons why we did it was to give people more choice. Uh, we did not like what uh, some of the, in a particular um, vendor was doing. And they do try to use the fact that they have that type of influence with, with the control to make people buy the other products, whether they're warranted or not. And this gives people more choice. It's, it does justice to the dealer because now they're not bound by one specific manufacturer telling them what they have to do. They're giving choice. So now maybe you like my control engine, but you want to use it with um, brand XYZ touch panel. You'll be able to do that. Can't do that right now. It's got to be this brand, this brand, this brand, and that's it. And it, it's got to be their stuff or nothing. And that's not a good way to do things. That takes away the originality. It takes away creativeness. And then you get into the programmers themselves. I mean, if you think about it, what happens if one of these companies go under or if one of these other companies uh, decides they're going to sell themselves and they, get, they kind of isolate themselves from the industry because of what they're leading to? They spent all this time learning something proprietary that's used by maybe thousands, if you're lucky not millions. And JavaScript, when you learn it, you can do anything you want. You could use web, you could do website development. You could just, you actually become more productive for your company that way. You could do do their websites. You could do other things. You could branch out. You also get more access to code and and research answers and you get more choices in the software development tools and the capabilities that grow because now you're tapping into what's out there on the web and not just limited to what's in the proprietary little world that this company tells you. But when that happens, or if they lose their job, what do they do now? If they're only a Crestron programmer, for example, 
where do they go next if there's no jobs available with the amount of jobs that are available? So it's kind of a scary situation to be in that note. When you've been trained in only that, what do you do next? And what if one day they go out of business? Or what if they sell to a larger company that decides they're going to only focus towards enterprise solutions only? Now what do you do? You put your whole livelihood into their hands. They, they grew off of the smaller guy to what? Eventually give it away? Not saying they're going to do that, but I'm just giving you an example of reality and things that have happened in the industry that could happen. Then where do you go from there? If I was a programmer, I'd be scared. Yeah. Aurora is a perfect example of that. I mean, back in the day, we were a crush-on programmer. They sent us a cease and desist letter saying, stop programming one day because they felt that we were too much competition. When actuality, actual, we really weren't. We were just making products that complemented their stuff. And, but I guess they had their own way of looking at things. Uh, but one day we were writing code for them. Next minute we weren't. That can happen to everyone and anyone at any time. It's in their, it's, it's in their own uh, licensing for Kate membership and other things that they can, uh, they have the ability to control who does what and when. And that, to me, is a little bit too much power. That, to me, allows people to choose who and who cannot do things. And I, I don't think that's good for the industry. So I'm trying to lighten that up a little bit and give people more choice. Absolutely. Uh, if you sit down with your retirement planner and he describes diversification to you, it's sure, makes sense, no problem. But um, in AV, we tend to overlook that. And uh, we talk a lot about source code, but nobody gets the source code for not, uh, for proprietary solutions. And if something ever happens to that company, then that's it, game's over. You either uh, you can no longer expand or enhance that, that system anymore. And the skills you have are... Uh, <laughs> They suddenly become defunct. So I'm on board with you. And JavaScript, the trend in web development is to use JavaScript on the front end and the back end. So you could do your user interface in JavaScript and you could do your control stuff in the same language, which is just that alone is a really powerful thing. So uh, bang for the buck. Yeah, and it goes way beyond that. And so hopefully, like I said, at best, maybe these other companies will learn from it. Like I said, they, they, look, every, every, every person who owns a company is entitled to decide what they want to do with it and where they go. Either way, React is going to be a win-win. If it doesn't take off, well, we developed a great control engine that Aurora will sell and life goes on, and it will be our control engine that we do. If it does take off, then hopefully it can free up and fix the industry and give more choice out there and take us to another level that we have not seen in this industry and, and really break down a lot of barriers that are out there. Uh, and then hopefully... As people see that, maybe they'll change. The other companies will change their ways as well, uh, and it will improve things. So, you know, for us, we try to get along with all manufacturers, even our competitors. We we don't, as far as we're concerned, there's a lot of work out there for everybody. It doesn't have to be a constant battle. Uh, it can be done in a way where everybody wins. Uh, but I do miss the days of when there was a certain level of expertise between each company and the lines have been blurred heavily. Yeah, me and too. I have that. So we've created this monster and now we have to see it through. So like I said, my job, at least our philosophy, is we're going to take a stab at trying to see if we can re-kickstart this industry in a different direction. And if we succeed in it, hopefully one day people look back and say, wow, Aurora was a company that did that. And they, they preached it and they delivered it. And if we don't, I guess at least we could still say at least we gave it a shot. We didn't see anybody else trying it. 
Excellent. Very, very exciting stuff. We'll have to follow up in, in a few months or a year or so and, uh, and, and see how this all works out. If, uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, it's 1-900. Um, no, I'm just teasing about the 900 number. <laughs> Although it's, it, it, it could be very enticing for another revenue stream. But uh, no, best way to do it is if they want to get in touch with me, just go to sales at aurorammm.com. Uh, I, I, I do get some of those emails, so uh, they'll, they'll forward it to me or whatever you need if they got any questions. Um, you know, so that, that's a good way to get in touch um, with me. You can always call my office. I mean, if you're a manufacturer and you're looking to get involved in this, people know how to get a hold of me. They just call into my office. They'll tell them who they are, and I'll, I'll obviously talk to them. I, I talk to everybody, so it's not a problem. And uh, if you're an end user or uh, you know dealer, consultant, whatever, we love to talk to all of you as well. And uh, Infocom, like I said, Boot C2146 will be uh, showing the full details about what it is and how it's going to impact people. And we'll make our case and people will help us evolve it. And hopefully we can make it into something that the industry will be proud of. Excellent. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you. Hey, Patrick here again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, if you liked what you've heard, if you want to hear more discussions like this, please go to iTunes, leave a review, subscribe to the show, send me a comment, get in touch with me somehow and let me know that you're out there listening and that'll motivate me to keep doing these shows and get more great guests on. So if you're driving or whatever, ask Siri to set something in your calendar to give you a reminder to go to iTunes and leave a review. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. For transcripts and show notes, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com.